Right, Joshua and chapter 5. Only going to read a relatively few verses tonight. Whether or not that's going to make this a relatively short study remains to be seen, but nevertheless, only a relatively few number of verses. We're just going to read the first 12. So Joshua, chapter 5, and the first 12 verses. And uh, just to remind you of the, the context, Israel has come across the Jordan and now they're all over on the other side. They're in Canaan. They're in the Promised Land. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the uh, Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts sank and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. I said this was going to be an eye-watering one, didn't I? This is why. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeoth Haraloth. Now, Gibeoth Haraloth, it wasn't called that when they got there. It was called that after they left because it means the hill of foreskins. <laughs> now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place and these were the ones Joshua circumcised they were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way and after the whole nation had been circumcised they remained where they were in camp until they were healed then the Lord said to Joshua today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. It's called Gilgal in Hebrew. It's very similar to the word to roll and the idea of rolling the, the reproach of Egypt away. So that's why it was called Gilgal. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Now that, that kind of falls into three different sections. 
that we're going to do tonight. Verse, verse 1 is the first. Uh, just remind ourselves. When all the Amorite kings went uh, west of the Jordan, all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites, they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. And you'll remember that we saw in earlier studies that when the spies were sent out to Jericho, Jericho was going to be the first place of conflict. Jericho was the first city that they had to take. And uh, we saw that Rahab became a believer. And they found out through Rahab that the people in the land um, had actually been living in fear and dread of Israel ever since they crossed over the Red Sea 40 years earlier. And that the, the people of the land, the Canaanites, knew that they were beaten. I mean, 40 years before Israel got anywhere near them, the Canaanites knew that they were beaten because they knew that God was with Israel in the crossing of the Red Sea and then again in the crossing of the Jordan. And of course, what we've got here, because remember, Joshua is the Old Testament counterpart to Ephesians. And Ephesians, Paul's speaking about spiritual warfare. And what we've got here is the defeat of Satan. What we've got here is the fact that Satan is far more frightened of Christians than Christians are of him. Well, I mean, sometimes we do fear Satan. That is silly. I mean, that really is silly. But even if we do, and there's no need to, but even if we do, we can know that he is more frightened of us than we ever could be of him because he knows that the Lord is with us and he knows that he's beaten because he knows that he hasn't got a chance against Jesus. I mean, he kids himself that he has got a chance against Jesus and time after time he goes up against the Lord but every time he gets beaten. And uh, let's, let's just, um, you know, sort of see, see some examples of this. I mean, the Lord always turns the tables on Satan. Actually, go, go to Ephesians. Um, and if you find chapter 6 and uh, verse 10, And um, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And, uh, of course, Paul talks in... Um, earlier on in Ephesians, the way that through the church God has made known his wisdom through, you know, sort of over Satan. And it's not so much that Satan is beaten by God's power, because after all, God could, if he wanted to, throw him down into Tartarus. I mean, in the Great Tribulation, that's exactly what God's going to do. Or he could, you know, just banish him from the universe completely. God can overpower Satan any time he wants. But he chooses rather to outwit him, and he does that through the church. And uh, hence we must take our stand against the devil's schemes. Satan, the horse that Satan backed, was his own cunning, his own ability to be wise. Well, so God thinks, right, okay, you depend, Satan, on your cunningness, 
Well, if you think you're cunning, you ain't seen anything yet. And so God, the judgment against Satan, is that he is continuously outwitted by God through the church. And uh, let's let's see some of um some examples. I mean, the most profound example, obviously, is Jesus himself. Uh, I mean, right back from the Garden of Eden, all right, you know, Satan... He, he led mankind into sin, Adam and Eve, etc., etc., and there, you know, if you like, was a victory. And yet immediately there's the promise that the Redeemer will come. And so therefore, from that day, Satan sets out to thwart the coming of this Redeemer who was going to undo what he'd just done in the garden. Uh, the first bit of information he had is that this Redeemer was going to be born of woman, so the first bit of info he had was uh, that, you know, sort of like the Redeemer's going to be a man. So, first ploy, right, I'll genetically engineer things so there's not a human race. And so some of the demons take on human form. This is in, in Genesis 6, you know, where the sons of God took to themselves the daughters of men and the Nephilim appear. And immediately you've got Satan, if he can engineer things so there's not a human race, then this Messiah who's going to be human can't come. So Satan tries that. Didn't work. Okay. Next attempt, he discovers, as God reveals things through history, he discovered that um, this Messiah is going to be a Jew. You know, God created a race for himself, Abraham, etc., etc. So he finds out Messiah is going to be a Jew. So from that point onwards, from Abraham onwards, in Genesis still, the whole of Old Testament and indeed world history can be explained on the basis that Satan tried to destroy Israel. Because if the Redeemer, if Messiah, was going to be a Jew, well, then if there weren't any Jews, there couldn't be a Messiah. So throughout the whole of the Old Testament, Satan tries to destroy Israel. And that is the, the, the reason for, you know, sort of anti-Semitic feeling throughout the Old Testament era. Didn't work. Anyway, eventually Messiah is born. So, what does Satan think? Right, okay, kill him. It's my only option. I, I, I couldn't prevent him being born. I tried, but I couldn't. So now, he is born. I'm going to kind of make him unborn. I'm going to kill him. It's the only option left. Immediately, through Herod, the killing of the children didn't work. Jesus escaped. Angels appeared to Joseph and manoeuvred him and Mary and little Jesus so that they weren't where the attack took place. And... Uh, if you read throughout Jesus' life, there were times when people tried to kill him. It says he slipped through their hands. He went to Nazareth, his, his hometown. He went in the synagogue. He did a bit of teaching. The congregation grabbed him, manhandled him up to a cliff to throw him off. This is not good PR. This is not what we see from preachers today, but that's what Jesus got. And yet he slipped through their hands. Satan trying to kill him, but couldn't. Didn't matter what he did. Jesus was not killable by him. And so he kept working, and eventually he came up with his masterpiece scenario, uh, using the political tension between Rome and Israel, and using the crowds and the high priests. They were jealous of Jesus, so that worked out perfectly by Satan's plans. Eventually, I mean, after 4,000 years of history, eventually Satan actually got something right and he nailed Jesus to the cross and crucified him through the crowds and through Rome. At last he'd done it, he got it right. Or had he? Only to discover that it was the moment of Jesus' death 
that Jesus saved his people. It was when Jesus died that Satan's ultimate defeat happened. And so again, in that example, Satan, in doing everything he could to destroy the Messiah, actually ended up being the vessel of doing God's work because it was through Messiah's death that salvation was going to come. So Satan defeated himself as he, as it were, nailed the nails through Jesus' hands and feet. He was nailing himself into his own coffin. That is the victory of God over Satan. That is the wisdom of God being made manifest to the principalities and powers. Um, think of uh, Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph, who had guidance from God that one day he was going to be in authority over the other, you know, sort of brothers that he had, even though they were older than him. And, um, and immediately, because he had this vision, Satan attacks and tries to thwart it. And his brothers become envious, so Satan uses them. And uh, eventually they sell him off as a slave. And uh, rather than seeing the vision fulfilled, uh, you know, sort of Joseph ends up in, you know, sold as a, a slave. But then the house where he's sold into, he, he, he rises up through the ranks and he becomes a very trusted slave. But then he's falsely accused. Satan kind of like attacks again. He's falsely accused of uh, adultery. And uh, then he's thrown into jail. And you see that he's got the vision, and yet Satan attacking him all the time, trying to prevent God's will being worked out in his life. And yet, it was as a result of being in jail, and him being able to interpret the dreams of a couple of people in jail, one of whom went back into Pharaoh's service, it was through that that Pharaoh, who was having some dreams that needed interpretation, was told that this Joseph in jail could interpret dreams. And therefore, Joseph ended up as Pharaoh's number two and it was Satan attacking him and Satan trying to thwart God's will for his life that became the means of God's will being fulfilled in his life. So again, all the time, God turns the table on Satan. Satan, his desire is to thwart us. The whole time he wants to thwart us and yet what it ends up is that he ends up as one of the means of God actually accomplishing his will in our lives. Do you remember of Peter? When Jesus said to Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. I, basically, he's saying Satan really hates you, Peter, and Satan really wants to kick the living daylights out of you because he hates you so much. Now, because I love you so much, I've decided to let him. Only Satan, his desire was to destroy Peter, but Jesus' desire was that through Satan being allowed to have a go at him, Peter could be brought to a place where he realised his own utter weakness and helplessness and could therefore be broken. And because he was so broken and empty of himself, he could become the man we see on the day of Pentecost onwards, so very full of God himself. So Satan, seeing that God wanted to really use Peter, says, right, I'm going to destroy him. 
has a go and becomes the very means of preparing Peter so that what he feared most about Peter actually happened. Again, the tables are turned on Satan all the time. Job, my own namesake, look at what he went through from Satan. And yet the result of it was, it was Satan trying to destroy him. It was Satan trying to demonstrate to God, Job only follows you because of the way you bless him. He doesn't love you for yourself, God. This was what the contest was all about. So Satan attacked Job, took away every blessing he had in order to prove to God that Job loved him selfishly and didn't really love him at all. And what do we find? That Job did love God for himself alone and Satan took a major dive. And that that battle in Job's life was clearly won by the Lord because Job did not fall away, he did not curse God. He would not say slanderous things about God. He trusted and loved the Lord all the way through it. And so again, Satan completely outwitted by God at every point. And again, worth noting with the, you know, like, like the, the Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, and again with Job. Because remember, all the time, everything that Satan did against Peter or Job, he had to get God's permission first. So there was what Satan wanted to do, but there was what God allowed him to do. So everything Satan does is curved. Whatever he does against us, he's had to go to the Lord and get permission. And the Lord said yes. Now, in what he does, he's trying to destroy us. But the Lord knows that by letting him do just that, whatever it is, that amount, that it can actually be the means of God fulfilling his plan in our lives. Because, of course, as a result of the, 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 the testing and going through satanic attack and all the difficulties that this means, it, it shows us our dependence on God. It shows us what we really are and therefore gives us a vision of who Jesus really is as well. And so the point is that here, as Israel are coming into the Promised Land, the Canaanites know that they're done for. They put up a good fight but they knew that they were done for. And that all that was actually needed was for Israel to put their foot on the Canaanites. And all that is ever actually needed is for us to actually put our foot on Satan. And that's, that's what Jesus said, I've given you authority to trample over all the power of the enemy. Satan is already there. The only chance that Satan has got is to deceive us and to get us to acting like he isn't under our feet. And then we lie down and he can jump up and down on us. But the truth is, he is under our feet. And we need to live and act on that in faith. Satan is under our feet. He's been beaten. And he knows it. Though he kids himself that he's not really, he actually knows that he is. And uh, I suppose you might say that in reality, God gives Satan just enough rope to hang himself. So the next time that you feel that Satan is hanging around, don't feel threatened, know that he's about to hang himself. And that's the encouragement that we need to have. You mustn't fear Satan. No matter, even though at times, it, you know, he is a roaring lion. I mean, Peter warned the Christians. He says, look, be on your guard. Satan is a roaring lion and he's going around looking whom he may devour. So on the one hand, yes, Satan is dangerous, all right, so be on your guard, 
But if you're on your guard in the Lord, then you can be absolutely certain that whatever Satan does against you as a roaring lion, the Lord will actually pull his teeth in your life completely. And he won't actually be dangerous at all. He'll end up, as it were, as an angel of God, accomplishing God's will in our lives. And we need that relationship to Satan. We need that relationship to demons. We need that relationship to the principalities and powers, knowing that they are completely under Jesus' feet. Therefore, they are completely under our feet, and that whatever they do against us, it's all been meted out. They've had to get permission from the Lord first. And that if we look to the Lord, if we trust him, then we can know that these attacks, far from hindering us, are actually going to become the means of God having his way in our own lives. And so there, there's the first section in this, this chapter, the, the defeat of, of Satan. And then in verses 2 to 9, you, you, you get this thing about um, circumcision. Because, of course, apart from Joshua and Caleb, who were the only two who came out of Egypt, so they'd already been circumcised years and years before as little kids. Everyone who came out of Egypt had all died in the wilderness, that whole generation. Now, all the people who were born in the wilderness, they were now of adult age, but none of them had been circumcised. So, therefore, there had to be this, um, you know, kind of mass circumcision, um, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, to make up that deficiency. And, um, and there's a link here, because we've just seen the victory that we have over Satan in the Lord, and yet we're going to see now that that victory working out in actuality depends here on Israel being circumcised. So, they're coming into the Promised Land. The Canaanites know that they're beaten from the word go. But nevertheless, it wasn't just a question of Israel starting to fight. No, what happens first is that Israelite, is the Israelites now get circumcised. And so we've got to ask, okay, what is circumcision all about then? But if you go to Romans 2, Romans chapter 2, and I'm going to show you that our victory in spiritual warfare as believers is going to depend on our experience of what this circumcision is all about. Romans chapter 2 and uh, verse 28, Paul says this, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by a written code. By the written code, that's the law of Moses. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. So the point is that what we've got here is that circumcision amongst the Jews 
which was the sign of them belonging to God. Circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, was the sign that the Jews were a separate nation unto God. Now, what separates us out as believers is the fact that because we belong to the Lord and no longer the world, our lives, our behaviour is to be entirely different. The flesh has to be cut away to show that we're different from unbelievers. And of course what we've got here is a picture of sanctification. The picture we've got here is of God dealing with the power of sin in our lives. When you're born again, when you're justified, all right, what happens there is that the penalty of sin in your life is dealt with. You're justified. Justified, never sinned. And the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to you, credited to you, so you become right with God. And that's all over and done. That Nothing can change that. You're heaven bound. But then the Lord moves on. Having dealt with the penalty of sin, he then moves on to deal with the power of sin in our lives so that we start to become like him, like father, like son. And there, it's not the righteousness of Jesus being imputed, it's the righteousness of Jesus being actually imparted to us. And that sanctification is this picture of God dealing with the sin in our lives, setting us free from sin in our lives progressively, and bringing out of us more and more the actual righteousness and life of Jesus within us. Now that is what circumcision symbolises. It symbolises being set apart to God, and therefore if we're set apart, and the actual word holy means set apart. That's what holiness means, to be set apart. And it's a picture of God dealing with the power of sin in our hearts. And of course again, what is it? It's the cutting away of the flesh. That is literally what physical circumcision is, the cutting away of the flesh. Now then, one of the ways in which the Bible uses the term the flesh represents our sinful nature. The Bible refers to that as the flesh. Therefore, our sinful nature has to be cut away from us, as surely as the foreskin is cut away from you in physical circumcision. If you go to Colossians chapter 2, And if you find verse 9, Colossians 2 and verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you who have been given fullness in Christ, notice, you've already got it. The moment we were born again, we received Jesus in all his fullness because he came to live in us. See, so we already have fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority, as Satan puts him in his place. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Circumcision puts your foreskin off, as it were. Now here it's saying when we're born again, 
um, sort of like in the putting off of the sinful nature, the cutting away of the flesh. Not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And what you've got here is that Paul is saying, look, the moment you were born again, in one, this circumcision actually happened, you died with Jesus to sin, and you were raised up to new life. Now that's the truth, you're raised up with Christ in heavenly places. But in order for that to become experiential day by day through the rest of our lives, it has to be enacted out. So in one sense, the circumcision has already taken place. We are dead to sin. But in another way, this has to be acted out in our lives every day as we follow the Lord, that this circumcision has to be an ongoing thing. In one way, sin has been put off from us already, but in another way, we have to keep putting it off daily. We've been crucified with Christ, that's a fact. And yet to actualise that, we have to put to death our sinful nature. That's the teaching of Paul. And so therefore here, what we've got in, um, in Joshua is the fact that they had to be circumcised in order to symbolise the fact that if they were going to have this victory over Satan that was already theirs, if they were to actually have it, then there had to be an ongoing experience of becoming free from the power of sin so that they were actually living in obedience to the Lord rather than in obedience to Satan. Because at the end of the day, how can you have victory over Satan in practical terms if you're doing what he says rather than what the Lord says? So this is what circumcision is all about. And if you go to Hebrews chapter 4, because we'd better have a look at the scalpel, haven't we? Or the, the, the flint. They didn't even get scalpels, they got stones. Ouch, indeed. But let's have a look at the actual stone, the flint. <laughs> yes, the means of this circumcision. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. And um, he says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Now the writer here is referring back to the picture of Joshua and Israel in the wilderness. And this thing about the Sabbath rest, what he's saying here is that when God created the universe, on day seven, he rested. Because he'd finished, there wasn't anything more to do. Now then, in exactly the same way, when Jesus died on the cross, our salvation, including our sanctification, was finished. There's nothing more to be done. Jesus actually did it all on the cross. All we have to do is enter into that rest. So believing and knowing that Jesus has already done it, we discovered it's not us who does it at all, it's him. And yet the paradox is that we have to struggle to enter into that rest because we have to cooperate with the Lord 
as he works in our lives all the time, reducing us to nothing so that we're not depending on ourselves, but we're depending on God. But it's a struggle as we actually go through that process. And then he goes on to say, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now here we have the scalpel. Here we have the instrument of that ongoing circumcision of the heart that we need to be experiencing. And what is it? It's the Word of God. Because it's alive, it's active, it's the truth of God's Word. And therefore, as we study it, as we believe it, and as we act on it, the Holy Spirit makes it live. You know, in the, uh, James talks about it being an implanted Word, like a seed, and it comes to life so that we, we hear and we believe, and as a result of hearing and believing, then, in time, the seed grows and we come to actually experience what we've heard and believed. And, of course, what's interesting here is that this dividing that the Word of God does, this sword of the Spirit, it talks about dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Now. What does that mean? Soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Now, in the body, the, the, the joints, your bones, are dead. But the marrow inside the bones is alive. So organically, bones are dead. And that's why when, you know, sort of like, give a body long enough to decompose, what's left? The bones, because they were never alive. But inside the bone is the marrow. That is alive. So the comparison that Paul is saying, joints or bones equals dead, marrow equals alive. Spirit equals alive, soul equals dead. And what he's saying there is that our own life, our own carnal life, our own life lived in the natural is dead. But the spirit, our spirit, the Holy Spirit working through us, that's alive. And so what he's saying is that everything in our life that that, that isn't of God's life, it cuts away. So that more and more we come into the life that God himself has for us. And the instrument of, of, of that cutting away is the truth of the Word of God, applied in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit himself and acted on by us. No use if we don't act on it. But nevertheless, the instrument is the Word of God itself. And this is why throughout Old Testament and New Testament, all the time the emphasis is the Word of God, the Word of God, the truth. They shall know the truth, the truth shall make them free. That's what Jesus said. Jesus prayed. He said, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your Word is truth. Because the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit that divides, cuts away the flesh, from the Spirit, cuts away the sinful nature from the new nature. And so what we're seeing here is that the prerequisite of taking Canaan was Israel being circumcised. They had the victory already. The Canaanites knew that they were beaten, but Israel still 
had to be circumcised. Because even though the promised land was already theirs, how were they going to take it? They were going to take it by being obedient to the leading of God. So therefore, for us, the prerequisite for spiritual warfare, if we're to know victory, is a holy life. Living in obedience to the Lord. And obviously, where we sin and where we fail, repenting. Because that is obedience. Far better to be obedient and not to sin. But when we do sin, we can then correct that by being obedient in confessing our sins and repenting of our sins. And here, Joshua says, sorry, the Lord said to Joshua that what's happened today is I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt. And um, Egypt, remembering the symbolism, was the world. Egypt, the world, uh, you know, Pharaoh represented Satan, the taskmasters represented, you know, the bondage of sin in our lives. And, uh, you know, and of course, coming through to Canaan is, is, is the idea of coming into the fullness of, of life in Jesus. And, uh, and of course, what happened was that it, it took God a few days to get Israel out of Egypt. That was no great problem. But um, it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Now, that's very, very different. I mean, you and I, we are not in the world. I mean, we were, were translated out of the world into the kingdom of God's own dear Son. That happened when we were born again. We're out of the world. But the problem is the world is still in us. You get out of the world in an instant. But my goodness, getting the world out of us is different entirely. And it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And in fact, God never did. Israel actually died in the wilderness. And uh, it's not a question of kind of like God getting the world out of us. It's a question of Israel died in the wilderness, and so it is with us. It's, it's dying to the world. If you go to Galatians, chapter 6, and uh, find verse 14, Galatians six fourteen, And he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that's, that's how the Lord gets the world out of us, by us dying, death to self. Death to self. Because we are of ourselves of the world. We can't actually get out of that sense. We are the world. It's in us. Therefore, it's only by dying to self that this freedom can be actualized in our own lives. If you go to um, Psalm 119, which is um, it's one of my favorite psalms. It's, it's the longest psalm in the Bible. We're not going to read it all, I just want to find a couple of verses. But they give us King David's response to God working in his life in this way. If you find 67 first, and listen to this, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now 
I obey your word. Now, that affliction he's talking about were all the problems and all the difficulties that came upon him because he was following the Lord. And he says, it's good that I was afflicted in that way because before it happened, I didn't obey the Lord, but after it happened, now I find I do obey the Lord. And it's um, kind of a progressive thing. Yeah, it's not necessarily there's one bout of affliction and then that's it. You know, I mean, sometimes it can, you know, things can, can, can run progressively through the years. But it was all part of the process of the Lord, as it were, causing David to, to die to himself and therefore to die to the world, to die to the sinful nature within him. And um, verse 71, just a, a few verses on, he says it again, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn to, uh, sorry, that I might learn your decrees. And so therefore, what we're seeing here is that we've been taken out of the world that's, that's done, I mean, we're, we're, we're saved. But if we're to really grow in the Lord and to really see coming in, taking Canaan, everything in the Word of God that's been promised for us, victory over sin and everything like that, for us to experience that, first, there's got to be this circumcision. If we're to see victory over Satan, and Satan is under our feet, but we've got to see that it's going to be to the extent that we're allowing God to deal with us in our own lives. So we can put it another way. Victory over Satan is going to be proportionate in our lives to our submission to the Lord himself. Or to put it another way, we can hardly expect to exercise authority over Satan if we are not submitting to the authority of God himself. Because the authority that we have over Satan is delegated authority. It's not in us of ourselves, it's from the Lord. In my name, for example, they shall cast out demons. You see? And so this is why Israel, as they're about to embark on the actual warfare and the taking of Canaan, the land is already theirs. All they've got to do is go in and take it. But first, they have to be circumcised. Because unless they die to themselves, unless that, that cutting away of the flesh, unless that working of the Holy Spirit is going on in their lives, they're not going to be obedient to the Lord each step of the way. And even though Canaan was theirs, they only took it to the extent they were obedient to what the Lord was saying. And so it's going to be in our lives as well. That this cutting away of the flesh, the prerequisite, alright, for victory in spiritual warfare and really growing in the Lord and coming into the fullness of life in Christ, the, the prerequisite of that is the circumcision of our hearts, the Lord dealing with our sinful nature, dealing with our sinfulness, the cutting away of the flesh in our own lives and all the testing and difficulties that actually bring that about. Notice, though, that um, verse 8 tells us that they um, remained in the camp until they were, were healed. And, um, I mean, that's, that's necessary after you've just been circumcised. And, uh, but with, with the work that the Lord does in us, 
really dealing with our sin and sanctifying us. He knows that it hurts, and he makes allowances. I mean, he doesn't do it because it hurts. Uh, everyone knows with with their children. There there are times when you have to 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 do things with your children and in bringing them up that they don't like. It, it's not easy for them, but. Uh, you do it anyway, but then you try and make it up to them afterwards because it's necessary to actually, you know, put them through the hard times, but you make allowances. And the Lord did that here. They didn't have to get into spiritual warfare. They didn't have to begin the campaign, anything like that at all. Not whilst they were still in pain from being circumcised. And so that's, that, shows us that, that the Lord is right in there with us when it is difficult and when it does hurt. And he does make allowances and maybe there can be very difficult times and then maybe there's a season of, of much nicer times. It, it can work in different ways for different people, but one way or the other we can absolutely know that when it is hard and when the work God does in us does hurt, we can know that he's there and that he's close to us and just surrounding us with, with his love and he'll make all the allowances that, um, that we need. And um, it's good to, to note at this point as well that Gilgal, where this circumcision took place, um, remained as Israel's base camp throughout the campaign to actually take Canaan. And we must always, no matter how far we've got in the Christian life, no matter how advanced we feel we may be in spiritual warfare, how mature we believe we may be in the Lord, how much of the land maybe we feel that we've taken, it's vital to realise that we always return to Gilgal. Gilgal, the place of the knife the place of God dealing with our sin. And this is just another way of saying that it doesn't matter how long we've been Christians, how much progress maybe we make in the Lord, but we must always be returning to the foot of the cross. Because that's where Gilgal is, it's the foot of the cross. It's, it's, it's humbling ourselves before God, confessing our sins, handing over to him, the sinfulness of our lives, so that he can meet us with his grace and his forgiveness. And it shows us that sanctification isn't once and for all. There's, there's not some kind of you know, point where you can say, right, okay, that's me sanctified. You know, bye-bye Gilgal, I'll never see you again. Now, as long as, as long as we're down here, as long as we're in unglorified bodies, we have that sin problem and all the time the Lord must be dealing with us and and this all the time going back to Gilgal shows us that sanctification is continuous you you can never say right that's it I am sanctified no more work to do I mean not in a million years well I mean we know this don't we and if we don't let's pray that the Lord shows us Oh, because there's, there's something so wrong with any believer who doesn't realise that they must all the while, all the time, be going back to the foot of the cross. And um, 
we saw o earlier that, that, that we're over Satan to the extent that we're actually under the law, that we exert authority over the devil to the extent that we're actually under the authority of God himself. And there's a kind of a parallel here, like with the being raised up with Jesus in heavenly places, which we are. But in actuality, the experience of that is that we're only going to be raised up with Jesus to the extent that we're bowed down at the foot of the cross. Remember, the principle in the kingdom of God is always that he who humbles himself shall be exalted, but he who exalts himself shall be humbled. And that for Israel, all the time, didn't matter how far into the campaign they were, all the time going back to Gilgal, and that's the same with us. And in fact, the truth is, the deeper you go with the Lord, the further you are on with the Lord, in actual fact, the more frequent you realise that your visits to Gilgal have to be. It's immature believers who don't go there very often. You know, this kind of victory, 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 and, and hardly, hardly a problem with sin anymore. That's not maturity. That's, that's deception. I mean, Paul wrote and called himself the chief, chief of sinners. He didn't say he was, you know, in the past. He says, I am the chief of sinners. And we know that in our hearts all the time back to Gilgal. And also worth pointing out here as well, and it's a bit of a digression, but I think it's, uh, it's important, is just to... Um, remind ourselves here that, that they're circumcised as adults. Uh, they should have all been circumcised as eight-day-old babies, but they hadn't been. And as far as the law was concerned, here was a commandment that they hadn't fulfilled. But he didn't consider it too late to fulfill it. And even though circumcision was supposed to be done when you're a baby, nevertheless, even though they were adults, God had them be circumcised. And of course the parallel here is with believers' baptism. And, um, you know, if there are Christians who, for whatever reason, they've maybe been following the Lord for some time, but they've never been baptised in water as a believer as they should have been, as the Bible actually teaches. Maybe they've come from churches that don't teach that, or they were baptised as infants and, and haven't been sure whether they need to to be baptised again or whatever. And sometimes, and I face this, you know, in my own life, because I've been a Christian some years before I was actually baptised um, in water as a believer. And, and, and on my mind, even when I thought, well, yes, I mean, I, you know, even when I was convinced that believers' baptism by immersion was right, I thought, well, yeah, but it's an, a kind of an initiation thing. And I've been a Christian for years. And yet eventually I just realised, now hang on, this is a commandment I haven't yet obeyed. Repent and be baptised. And therefore, if there's a disobedience in my life, I must put that right. And so I was baptised, even though I'd been a, a believer for some years. And we see that here with circumcision. And so it is for any believer, for whatever reason, if they're not baptised, get baptised. It is never too late to get baptised by immersion as we ought to. 
And then in verses 10 to 12, we move on to the third and, and final section that we're dealing with tonight. And it's the fact that after they'd healed up from the circumcision, that they um, celebrated the Passover. And you'll remember the Passover, the Lord instituted this uh, the night that they were set free from Egypt, the night that he led them out of Egypt as a nation. And you'll remember that judgment was coming on Egypt. And uh, what happened was that, that, that the angel of death was going to pass over and all the firstborn were going to die. And uh, what they had to do was, was to, to, to take a lamb and sprinkle the, the blood of, of the lamb over the doorposts and that any household that had done that, they were protected by the blood and the angel passed over. And hence that's the name, Passover. And, uh, and, and of course, it's a picture, isn't it, of the fact that we're believers, we're covered in the blood of Jesus. I mean, G Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, um, you know, and the picture being that judgment won't come near us because of the blood of Jesus. We've trusted in him as our saviour. And you'll remember that this Passover meal, uh, they had to eat it standing up, like fully dressed, ready to go on a journey, because of course it was the night that they were going to be delivered um, from Egypt. And of course, they were slaves in Egypt, and it was a dreadful life. They were in complete bondage, and here, the Lord setting them free. And so it is with us. I mean, you know, the parallel here is, uh, you know, for us we've been set free by Jesus. And for us, it's not, it's not the Passover, as in the Old Testament. For us, it's the fact that Jesus, in the Last Supper, made that the last Passover, because he was fulfilling it. He was the Lamb of God, and instituted the love feast, the Lord's table, the heart of our worship, the meal that we eat together. And of course, it's celebrating our salvation. And for Israel, it was celebrating, it was rejoicing in the fact that they were being delivered from the bondage of Egypt. And so what we've got here in the Passover is we've got rejoicing in the joy of salvation. And if at Gal Gilgal, if, if the circumcision aspect, like death to self, death to the old life, God dealing with us, the cutting away of the flesh, if that's kind of negative, and of course in some ways it is, then here we have the positive aspect of the Passover. Here we have the reveling in the new life and blessing that we have in Jesus. And of course the point is that when, when we go through the difficult times, when God is dealing with us because of our sin, however negative that, that, that may feel, it's there to bring about a positive. It's there to, to, to bring us more and more into the life of Jesus. Less of us and more of him. And so you've got the negative, but the positive as well. And it, it's important for us to realise that. You know, that when it's hard, it's not the Lord putting us through a hard time just because he wants to. He wants to make our life a misery. Of course it's not. It's to bring us more and more into the joy of our salvation. I know in my own life, we all know in our lives, don't we? Some of the, the, the really hard times that you go through, and yet the point is that eventually, um, eventually, it brings you to a place 
where you're just so glad that you went through that, not because it was nice at the time, it wasn't, but because you come into the blessings of what God has accomplished in you because of that. And so you've got the negative aspect, the cutting away of the flesh, the circumcision, but here you've got the Passover, the rejoicing, the reveling in the joy of salvation, the positive aspect. Yeah, we've been set free from Egypt, and God has to get Egypt, has to get the world out of us. Negative, if you like. But boy, we've come into the kingdom of God. And it's coming into that experience of the joy and peace of the life we have in Jesus. And also here, it's at this point that the manna ends. Remember, all through the the years of the wilderness wanderings, this manna stuff that God fed them on, it was uh, it did the job, but it wasn't particularly, you know, it wasn't really yummy or anything like that. It, it, it was just a staple diet to get them through. Now here, what happens is that the manna stops, and now they begin to enjoy the produce of the land. Now they're they're, they're actually coming into all the goodness, you know, all the, the, the fruit and the crops and the livestock, and, and now they're really starting to eat properly. And, and of course, it's a picture, isn't it, of, of the fullness of the life of Jesus. And what they'd only glimpsed before, now they're coming into. And remember that part of the appeal of the promised land when God promised it to them was that it was flowing with milk and honey. You know, it was the fact that, 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 that you know, when they sent the spies in to spy out the land and that they came back and, and, and having to, to carry, you know, sort of like two men to carry a bunch of grapes because the, the, the fruit was so abundant, it was so big. And as God deals with us, difficult though it is at times, the writer to the Hebrews says that eventually it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness and it's the difficult times that lead to the great times the cutting away of the knife the cutting away of the flesh at Gilgal comes before the Passover and the eating the fruit of the land but once you start doing that it is worth the difficulty it is worth uh, the, the pain it is worth the tears because you come into the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Oh yeah, the knife may be cutting away the works of the flesh, as Paul calls them in Galatians. But in the same chapter, it also brings you into the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, etc., etc. And my goodness, the pain of the process of being delivered from the former is nothing compared to the joy of when you actually come into the experience of the latter. And so therefore here we've got the Passover and the beginning to eat the fruit of the land. And also, given that this is occurring now in the plains of Jericho, because Jericho is kind of just over there, and Jericho is, is the first city that they've got to take. Jericho is the first push in the campaign of warfare to take Canaan that is uh, in front of them. And here we have 
that praise and worship and feasting right under the nose of the enemy, Jericho. And so we've got praise and worship right under Satan's nose. They're feasting right in the plains of Jericho. And of course, uh, in, in, in Psalm 23, a uh, famous psalm of David, the, uh, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. In, in verse 5, he says, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And this is the beautiful thing about it. The rejoicing is right under Satan's nose. And he hates it. Satan hates it when believers praise the Lord and worship the Lord. And I'll tell you why. And, and this answers why it is that worship and praise is, is an aspect of spiritual warfare. I mean, not that we do it in order to get victory over Satan. I mean, we don't use praise and worship as a tool in order to, to do spiritual warfare. Praise and worship underpins our whole lives. We praise the Lord, we worship the Lord because he is God. But a knock-on effect of that is that, my goodness, it fires salvos of, 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 of spiritual atom bombs right into the heart of Satan's kingdom. And the reason that it has that effect and the reason that Satan hates praise and worship of the Lord so much is quite simply it reminds him that he's not God. Because it's the true God we're worshipping. And Satan wants to be God. I mean, it's ridiculous, but that's what he wants. That's what he's peeved about. He wanted to be as the Most High. And therefore, when we worship God, it reminds him the whole time that he's not God. And it reminds him that there is the one true God. And it doesn't matter what Satan does to deny him, go against him, whatever. The Lord Jesus is there and he is Lord. And that includes over Satan. And Satan absolutely hates it. And it kind of causes chaos in his kingdom. You'll remember um, some time ago we did the study on Jehoshaphat, didn't we? In the time when... Uh, you know, various nations got together to, to invade um, Israel and uh, Jehoshaphat sought the Lord and through a prophet the Lord said, yes, <clears throat> go out, you know, sort of like, I'm going to give you victory. <clears throat> and what Jehoshaphat did was he sent out the singers in front of the army so that the army came in behind the choir and the choir went out marching to the battle with the army behind them marching to the battle, singing praises to the Lord. And what happened is that the Lord caused confusion in the enemy camp. And these nations, joined together against Israel, fell out with each other and they started to beat each other up. And by the time Israel got there, these other armies had desecrated themselves. I mean, they, they, they were gone. They, they'd beaten each other to a pulp. And there was no fighting to be done. The victory had already been won before they even got there. That is the effect of praise in regards to spiritual warfare. That the battle is won as we praise the Lord. 
because in worshipping him we're acknowledging that he is God and that the battle has already been won. We already have the victory over Satan. Satan is already under our feet. Why? Because Jesus is Lord and because we're one with Jesus and we're raised up with him. Go to um, Psalm 149. And uh, one of the choruses that we sing uh, comes from this particular psalm. Psalm 149. And um, we'll read from verse 6. It says, May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. And there you have it, there in that context, it's talking about all the, the nations around Israel who were, you know, sort of like kept trying to, to, to invade them and beat them up and destroy them. And, uh, but of course, for us, this is a picture not of worldly nations, but of the principalities and powers, of Satan, um, of, of the demons, you know, I mean, whatever rank they are. And, and it says, may the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands. And what have we got here? We've got the word of God and we've got praise and worship. And here we have part of the basis of victory in spiritual warfare over Satan. Praising and worshipping the Lord. And of course we worship, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. So here we have praise and worship and the two-edged sword, the word of God. We've already seen that from Hebrews. And this is how we see victory um, in regards to spiritual warfare. I want to end with um, a contrast here. Um, again, it's in a psalm, Psalm 106. And um, I'm going to read from... Um, Verse 7, and what we've got here is that at any point in our Christian lives, whether our Christian lives in general or any specific situation or incident that we're in, there's always two ways that we can respond to any circumstance. And depending on our response, we will have victory over Satan or we'll be in defeat. Let's read from verse, verse 7. When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy he redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries, not one of them survived. Now here's the first way we can respond. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. Now there's two things you'll do. 
if you respond by believing God's promises, you will sing his praise. The two go together. The latter is simply a result of the former. If you believe his promises, then you will sing his praise. And you realise that whatever you're going through, no matter how hard it is, how difficult it is, how much maybe it feels like it's Satan jumping up and down on you, whether it feels maybe that God has deserted you, or whatever, the point is, you'll believe his promises. In every Romans 8.28, for instance, in everything God works together for good for them that love God and accord according to his purposes. Whatever it is, it's the Lord allowing it for good in your life. Well then, you'll sing his praise, no matter what. Now there's the first response. For the other response, go to verse 24. Now listen to this. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his promise. So if you believe his promise and go with the word of God, put your foot down on the word of God and say, that's the truth, that's what I'm going with, you'll sing his praise. But if you don't believe his promise, if you don't hang on to the word of God, then you despise the pleasant land. The pleasant land, Canaan, the promised land, fullness of life in Jesus, despise your discipleship. And what does that mean? Well, verse 25, they grumbled in their tents, and did not obey the Lord. Moan, grumble, negative. You see the difference? One is the response of faith, the other is the response of unbelief. And remember that Israel, the whole generation who died in the wilderness, why did they die there? Unbelief. They didn't inherit the promises because they didn't believe God. Joshua did and Caleb did, but they were the only ones who did. Now, we want to be Joshua's and Caleb's. We don't want to be the ones who perish in the wilderness, like fade away spiritually because of unbelief all the time. No, there's the choice, all right. Believed his word and sang his praise, despised the pleasant land having uh, because they did not believe his promise. If you do that, then grumble in your tents. Moan, moan, moan. That's the choice before us every day and every hour of every day especially when things aren't easy especially when things look grim especially when rather than looking like Jesus is Lord and, 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 and everything's under his feet sometimes it can look the other way around it, 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 things can look and feel like, you know, you're just a hapless victim of the devil. That's not true. That's a lie. And it's God word, God's word that tells us that it's a lie. And so, therefore, here is our choice. Faith and praise leading to victory over the enemy. Or alternatively, unbelief and grumble, grumble, moan, 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 and Satan walking all over you. Now, that's the choice we have to make. It's the choice I have to make. I often make it wrong. When we do, we must put that right. But this is the choice. And obviously, 
what has it got to be more and more? Well, let our prayer be that we're going to be those who believe his promises and sing his praise. Well, we've seen a lot tonight about the preparation of Israel for spiritual warfare as a nation. The circumcision, uh, the Passover. And next time, we're going to home in much more specifically on further work that the Lord does to prepare Joshua as an individual and as a leader of God's people to prepare him for the campaign of warfare that's going to come upon them. So we'll uh, continue with that next time.